Good morning. Imagine with me, uh, if you would, a young man standing on a sidewalk in his hometown, a day much like any other day, except for something um, really out of the ordinary. This young man looks up into the sky, and what he sees are millions of tiny sheets of paper raining down all over the city he lives in. So he plucks one of these pieces of paper out of the sky, and he looks at it. On one side, there's a picture. He flips it over, and there's a paragraph written on the other side, and it says this. Read this carefully, as it may save your life or the life of a relative or friend. In the next few days, some or all of the cities named on the reverse side will be destroyed. Can you imagine the thoughts that would be running through this young man's head as he reads this piece of paper? Is this for real? Is this going to happen? Who, who was it that dropped this on our city? People's lives could be in danger if he believes what is written on that little sheet of paper. What action would he take? Now, this is something that actually happened. It happened on August 6, 1945. Millions of tiny pieces of paper were dropped on the cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, warning those people of what was about to happen. Some of those people took that little sheet of paper and they believed what it said. They decided to act on it. They decided to get out of those cities because of what was going to happen. And as you well know, towards the end of World War II, atomic bombs were dropped on those cities. And tens of thousands of lives were lost. It would have been much worse had those people not been warned as to what was about to happen. Now, what if I told you that another cataclysmic event was going to happen? Only this time, it's not going to be confined to a few cities. It's going to be worldwide. And what if I said that there's not going to be any government that's going to step in and warn people as to what was going to happen? But the people that are going to issue the warning are the people that are in this room and people in the churches in Sheridan and people in churches that are meeting worldwide today. Because when I read Mark 16, 15, it says, And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And whenever I get into the book of Revelation, I read about things that are going to happen towards the end, things that are factually much worse than what happened in Hiroshima and what happened in Nagasaki. And it's going to be up to you and I to get the word out as to how people are going to be saved. God has given that charge to us. This is the message entrusted to you and me. So the question that is put to us today is how are we going to do that? 
How are we going to make Christ known to the world? That'll be our subject today. We're going to go into this next section in Philippians. Uh, and I would ask you, if you would please stand for the reading of God's Word. We'll be in Philippians chapter 1. Uh, this morning we'll be in verses 12 through 18. Philippians 1, 12 through 18. It says there, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that my situation has actually turned out to advance the gospel. The whole imperial guard and everyone else knows that I'm in prison for the sake of Christ. And most of the brothers and sisters, having confidence in the Lord because of my imprisonment, now more than ever dare to speak the word fearlessly. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do so from love because they know that I am placed here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, because they think they can cause trouble for me in my imprisonment. What is the result? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is being proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. You may be seated. Last week, we talked about living out the gospel, and we looked at how to live out the gospel. We do it by supporting co-laborers in the gospel. We do it by living, rather loving and learning for living. We saw in that prayer last week that he was commending and thankful to God. Paul was praising God for things that were going on among the Philippians, but he was also encouraging them to abound more and more in love and depth of insight so that they would better know how to live out the gospel in their lives. This morning we're coming into this next section uh, in Philippians and this next set of verses. And we're going to see four ways, four ways to make Christ known. Four, four things on how we make Christ known. And the section this morning is divided up into two sections, verses 12 through 14, Paul's going to talk about the advancement of the gospel, both inside and outside prison. Then in verses 16 through 18, he's going to talk about the advance of the gospel outside the prison in the face of a lot of bad motives. So the passage is divided up that way, but through this we'll look at the four ways, four things to do to make Christ known. So, we now jump into this passage. And uh, we start there in, in verse 12. Paul is turning to his own affairs, and he's reflecting on his time in prison. He's seeing things happen. He's seeing the gospel being advanced. So there in verse 12, he says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that my situation has actually turned out to advance the gospel. The whole imperial guard and everyone else knows that I'm in prison for the sake of Christ. So, there's this confidence, and we see in this section that Paul is informing his Philippian friends, um, contrary to their expectations, that he's doing okay. I'm doing all right. Good things are actually happening. And, and here is how one for whom Christ and the gospel, here is one who holds these two things as most valuable, responds to adversity. And we see it in verse 12. He's interpreting his time in prison. In, 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 while he's in prison, he's saying, brothers and sisters. Again, using this very 
endearing phrase to the people to whom he's writing, eager to let them know, don't be anxious about me. And he's, he's very encouraging. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was in a cell writing to people I loved, this is probably not what I'd be communicating. I might be complaining about the food. I might be complaining about myself. I don't know what I, frankly, I've not been there, fortunately. I don't really know what I would be saying, but I doubt I would have this kind of a gospel focus that, that Paul has. He actually even seems quite delighted. And why? Because he says the gospel is being advanced. This reminds me a lot of Billy Graham. Uh, Billy Graham, if he was ever going to be interviewed on TV, they would always do the mic check beforehand, you know, test, test, one, two, all that. Anytime Billy Graham did a mic check, he would always quote John 3.16. And finally they said, why do you always quote John 3.16? He said, well, just, he said, just in case the interview doesn't happen, he said, at least the cameraman will have heard the gospel. That's the kind of gospel focus that these men have. Billy Graham and the Apostle Paul. Then he begins to unpackage more in verse 13. He says, This whole imperial guard and everyone else knows that I am in prison, that I am in prison for the sake of Christ. So then, who are these, these people? Uh... These are all the unbelievers that are around Paul. These are the people that see who he is, see what he's doing. This imperial guard was also called the Praetorium. This was like the, the, the Caesar's private security detail. And they would have access to Paul. They would probably see him in four-hour shifts. And in those four-hour shifts, what did Paul do? Well, he had time to share the gospel. So I'm sure that those prison guards were hearing the gospel all the time from Paul while he was in prison. Um, he'd have access to almost all of them coming around in those ships. And what I hope you can feel is Paul's sense of triumph. That he is in prison, that he is in chains, but he is glorifying God. He's excited about the results that he's seeing while he's in prison. And he's wanting to encourage the recipients of this letter because he also knows that they're going to be facing persecution as well. You see, even in the language that these people are using, these Philippians, using the term Lord to describe God and not Caesar, that was going to be problematic for them. There are actually a lot of issues that Rome took with Christianity in these early stages. One, they thought they were a group of incestuous people. Why in the world might you say that they would think that? Well, they use these term, terms brothers and sisters to describe even their, their spouses. So they had some fear of them being incestuous. They also thought that these, uh, these Christians were cannibals. Now, why in the world would they think these Christians were cannibals? Well, it seems that every time they're getting together, they're consuming the body of this person named Jesus Christ. They also thought that they were antisocial, these Christians. Why did they think they were antisocial? Well, because they didn't participate in a lot of the games. The games were uh, tributes to the gods oftentimes. So they had all these issues. They also thought that they didn't have enough gods. 
They were practically atheists, only having one God from a very pantheistic, polytheistic kind of culture. So they had all these problems with Christians, and Paul knew that that was going to spell um, persecution for them. However, like Paul, like Billy Graham, we too should be seeking these gospel opportunities. And that's actually our first point, is look for gospel sharing opportunities. Um, you never know what kind of a moment can turn into an opportunity to make your faith known. Like I said, I've not been in prison, but I've been on the continuum to prison, you could say. I had to do community service one time. I know, pick your jaws up off the ground. Your new pastor had to do community. I didn't have to, actually. I volunteered to do it. I ran a stop sign when we were living in Texas. and We were in seminary, and we didn't have two nickels to rub together. So I thought, you know what? I'm just going to do community service. So I remember I was working at this boutique. It was actually a boutique that uh, all the prophets went to the needy there in Dallas. And there in my purple smock with yellow flowers on it, <laughs> I shared the gospel with the other community servants with whom I was serving. It was an opportunity that opened up. They started asking me questions. Well, why are you here? It's like, well, I ran a Well, um, what do you do? Well, I'm in seminary. Well, what do they do in seminary? Ha-ha! The door opened. It was a gospel-sharing opportunity that I was able to take advantage of. These things can just come up from time to time. You never know where you may be stranded somewhere, where you may be stuck, what line you could be in that you may have a chance to share the gospel with someone. And I hope you're praying for those kind of opportunities. By the way, um, when I shared the gospel with those people that I was in community service with, you know what? No one, to my knowledge, in that moment trusted Christ as their Savior. It's not our job to get people to trust Jesus as their Savior. It's our job to share the message. Whether or not people believe it, that's above our pay grade. It's just our job to get it out there, to share that gospel message with people. And by the way, that leads me to the second way to make Christ known. It's by knowing how to share the gospel. Now, I can't um, get into a full-blown uh, presentation right now to teach you how to do that. And unfortunately, this didn't show up. There is a fantastic website out there that will teach you how to share the gospel. How do you get into those conversations? And it's it's actually www.evantel, E-V-A-N-T-E-L-L, dot O-R-G, forward slash gospel dash presentation. Evantel dot O-R-G, forward slash gospel dash presentation. The guy that set up that website is a man named Larry Moyer. You may or may not have heard of Larry Moyer. He's the one that teaches Dallas Seminary students, at least, how to go out and share the gospel. And there's a method there of how to share the gospel that I have used countless times. I've used it in large crowds. I've used it one-on-one. -on -one, I've used it in hospital rooms. It's very clear, and it's very, very effective. So if you're thinking, well, I really, I'm not comfortable sharing the gospel. I'm not, it, this is a good place to start. We will teach classes here in the future on this material. I haven't got to it yet, but we'll get to it. Because this is something that we all need to know how to do, how to share the gospel, how to share our faith. 
So this is a good place to go um, to know how to share the gospel. And it'll give you a degree of confidence if, if you've not done it before. So in verse 13, um, Paul speaks of this impact that imprisonment has having on his captors, the unbelievers. And then now in verse 14, he'll speak to the impact it's having uh, on the believers in Rome. And he, let's see, let me go back. So there in verse 14, he's going to speak to this impact. Again, he starts that address, brothers and sisters. So we know he's speaking to believers, of believers. And he seems to be talking about local believers here in this verse. Um, the believers in Rome that, uh, around where he's imprisoned. But what about them? He says, having confidence in the Lord because of his imprisonment. Paul is seeing this amazing confidence growing among those local believers because of the fact that he's been put in prison. Um, and it's this response then of, of the Roman church to his imprisonment, the response is twofold. First of all, you see that they become extraordinarily bold. They found this confidence brought on by this imprisonment. So Paul sees his imprisonment as being an instrument. It's an instrument that God is using to embolden the Christians there in Rome. Now, this is huge. It's, it's not for nothing Paul knows that he's been imprisoned. He, these Christians were going to have to have extraordinary boldness because of what they were going to be facing. They were going to be facing torture. They were going to be facing um, this Caesar by the name of Nero, who, by the way, had his own mother murdered because she was upset that he was having an affair. Um, and he was reaching the peak of his madness, actually, while Paul was in prison. It was challenging Caesar's own role as a, as a god that these Christians were around. He's not the only leader that has had that delusion. So first, these Christians were emboldened. That was the impact that the, the prison, um, the imprisonment Paul was having. Secondly, there was a newfound boldness that was leading the Christians to speak fearlessly. To speak the word fearlessly. Now, what is the word? Well, he's talking about the gospel. He's talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And verse 15 confirms this. We'll, we'll get to that uh, in a moment. So part of Paul's present joy is that his arrest has encouraged and enheartened by the Christians in Rome to the point that they're willing to proclaim Christ in a way that they never would have been able to have done otherwise. And that leads us to this third impact, finding courage from others. Make Christ known by finding courage from others. You may have seen in the news recently a man by the name of Chow. He was 26 years old, and he decided he was going to take the gospel to the Sentinelese people. There was, a small, there was a small island called the Sentinel Island uh, between India and Myanmar. And he decided those people needed to hear the gospel. And this is one of the most isolated people groups in all the world. As a matter of fact, it had been outlawed that anyone should be able to go to this island. But he decided 
that Satan was keeping them from hearing the word of God. And the people, purely out of fear, were not going there. So he decided that he had to go. And this 26-year-old man, he left uh, behind his diary. He paid a fisherman $325 to, to take him to this island where the gospel had not been shared. Probably one of, the, one of the few remaining places in the world that hadn't been shared. And he said this in his diary. He said, God, I don't want to die. But if you want me to get killed with an arrow, so be it. To his parents, he wrote, you guys might think I'm crazy, but I think it's worth it to declare Jesus to these people. Please do not be angry at them or at God if I get killed. It turns out that those, those fishermen, those people that had taken them there, saw him being dragged around on the beach by the people after he was killed. I can guarantee you he has no regrets today. Right on. You know what? It's very easy to say from where I'm standing, hey, this is what we should do. It's really easy. <laughs> I'm not the one facing arrows. I'm not paying someone to get out to an island. But I bet you there's someone out there who's going to hear that story and they're going to be the second person to go to that island. Because somebody did it before. Somebody blazed the trail and that's giving courage to somebody else. You know, a second story that I'd like to share is the story of uh, Jim and Elizabeth and their daughter Valerie Elliott who had a mission in Ecuador and Jim and some other missionaries had gone to the the Alca Indians to share the gospel with them and were subsequently killed. Now you might think that after that his wife would flee the country and take their daughter and just get out of there, that she would so hate these people for murdering her husband that she would want nothing to do with them. But if you, if you know the story, you know, that's not what happened at all. Elizabeth took their daughter Valerie and they went straight back to those very Indians who killed her husband and stayed with them and learned the language and wrote out the gospel. You see, that's, that's what this emboldening can do. I wonder what her parents thought of that. I doubt they approved. So she lived in that hardship, emotional hardship, knowing this is where her husband died. She pressed forward in obedience and accomplish the work that God had given them to do. She had this commitment to share the gospel, to communicate the gospel in the face of this kind of loss and hardship. That's the same kind of spirit that this imprisoned Paul has. Thankful, no matter what, that bottom line, the gospel is advancing. You know, I can remember being emboldened, even, uh, even to, when, when I was considering going to seminary. I'll never forget that me and some friends went on a ski trip, and I was really struggling if I was to pursue this pastor thing or not. Frankly, I didn't know. I remember I was working as an engineer at the time. I was about the same age as this young man, uh, child that went to this Sentinelese island, and I was struggling. I, I thought, God, I'm working as an engineer here at this, this naval base. 
Who just up and quits and goes to seminary? This just seems kind of dumb to me. Seriously? So I was struggling with that inside. But nobody does this. So some friends and I, we, went, we left Maryland. We, we went on a ski trip to, um, to Canaan Valley, West Virginia. It's about four and a half hours away or so. And we decided, since we were going over the weekend, that we decided we were going to go to a church service while we were in Canaan Valley. And the regular pastor had actually gone on a ski trip in Idaho, so there was a guest speaker that day. You may know where I'm going with this. So the guest speaker comes over, and he sees us all sitting there. He starts talking to us and says, uh, so where are you all from? And we say, well, we're from this little place in southern Maryland called Patuxent River. He said, oh, yeah, I know Patuxent River, Maryland. I used to work as an engineer down there on that naval base. <laughs> okay, Lord, I got it. I'm not blazing a new trail here. It's hard for us to relate to these stories of these missionaries because we live in comfort. We live in established churches. We live here in the West. It seems a million miles away what these people are doing and what they've done, but you know what? They're just people. They're just, they're just Christians. What is it that's imprisoning us? What are the chains that are holding you and I back from sharing the gospel? Ridicule? Pride? Fear of what someone might think? Those things end up becoming shackles. By the way, being afraid to share the gospel is very normal. It's very, as a matter of fact, Paul himself admits I was afraid when I was sharing the Gospels in 1 Corinthians 2, 3. He said, and, and when he was with the church in Corinth and he was sharing the Gospel with them the first time, he said, and I was with you, and listen to this very carefully. This is the Apostle Paul I'm talking about. He said, I was with you in weakness and in fear and with much trembling. His knees were knocking sharing the Gospel. The only difference is he didn't let it stop him. He plowed and he pursued and he went forward. You know, we're not blazing a new trail and sharing the gospel with somebody. It's been done before, lots of times. It's just about not getting shackled with fear. By the way, we're here to show the next generation how to share their faith. Do you know, have you thought about that? That we're links in a chain that began with Christ and has gone on generation after generation. And it's going to happen. Christ said that the church would continue on earth until he returns. Until he takes the church to be with him. We've got the privilege of being links in that chain. So, be encouraged by others. Find courage from what other people have done. That man that I met in, in, at that church in Davis, West Virginia, had no idea how he had strengthened me. So Paul can sit in a prison, and interestingly, he can have joy. And again, this is just weird. It's like, seriously? Yeah, he's sitting in a prison with joy because he's seeing this growing confidence 
and fearlessness among these believers in Rome. But he does see something that's troubling him. And we see this in verses 15 through 18. Something's bothering him. He says there in verse 15, Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. Now, this is a weird sentence to me. Um, nowhere uh, previously does Paul even hint about something like that going on, that the people are preaching the gospel with, with bad motives. So we've got these two kinds of people that rise to the service. We've got people with, with good motives, and they're preaching the gospel. We've got people with bad motives that are preaching the gospel. And um, some who see Paul's time in prison probably as evidence that he's disobeyed somehow, right? So when Paul had been imprisoned earlier in Philippi, God brought an earthquake and freed him. But we don't see that happening here. So some might have taken that, oh, well, Paul might be uh, disobeying somehow. Let's jump in and do this thing the right way. And maybe some people just didn't like Paul. Um, people with the right motives see that Paul can't be involved in preaching right now. So they're going to step up and they're going to fill in the gaps. Those are the people doing with the right motives. Then Paul's going to elaborate further, in, starting in verses 16 and 17. And he's going to say, The latter do so from love, because they know I am placed here for the defense of the gospel. So again, some are being motivated by love. They see themselves as witnessing a comrade down. Much like if you were in a battle, or you were in an army, and your, your fellow soldier had fallen... So you run over and you see what his function was and you pick up the radio, you put it on your back, you grab his gun, you go out and you fill in the gaps. They're willing to step up. They understand that it was part of God's plan and purpose that Paul be imprisoned at this time. So they're not taking issue with it. But then in what sense is Paul defending the gospel? Because Paul saw the, the gospel itself as being uh, on trial. Remember, there's no New Testament yet. And Paul's out there, he's getting the gospel out there, and he's defending it. Well, how is he defending it? Much the same way we could probably defend it. He's probably saying things like, well, see, Jesus appeared before 500 people after he died. All kinds of people witnessed him die. They got, he got put in a tomb. And then he was alive and walking around in front of 500 people. This, this event was not without witnesses. So he's defending the gospel, and it's getting through to all the officials. As a matter of fact, his imprisonment is allowing him to get in front of the most influential people in Rome, the tribunals and the officials. So he's proclaiming this message about Jesus of Nazareth. This, he's saying, this thing you heard about Jesus of Nazareth, he's saying it's true. He's saying there's evidence, there's eyewitnesses. It really happened. He's making the gospel known. So the people of verse 16 understood what Paul was doing and why they needed to step in at this time. The people of verse 17, well, not so much. And uh, Paul speaks about this group of people, saying the former proclaimed Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, because they think they can cause trouble for me in my imprisonment. They're not motivated the way Paul and the others are. So now it's like, well, what are these turkeys up to? 
Um, and again, it seems that they're part of the believing community in Rome. It doesn't seem that they're unbelievers. Because Paul strongly speaks about his opponents in other areas. He's not referring to them that way. He's saying the reasons for them preaching the gospel was for selfish ambition. That their goal was to cause trouble for Paul. And again, we don't really know why. Again, people, some just didn't like Paul. I, you know, to be, to be honest, sometimes when I read about Paul, I'm not 100% sure I would like the guy. But you know what? He's incredibly effective. And what he's doing is being used in mighty ways. Being liked is not a prerequisite for being used by God. So he's being used. And again, there's probably people that thought, well, he's in prison, so God's punishing him. And he's saying that there's people out there that are kind of like gospel mercenaries. So a mercenary, there's a difference between a mercenary and a soldier in that a soldier will fight and serve his country for love of country. A mercenary will fight and serve a country for love of self because they're getting paid for it. That might be the ambition of this, this other group of people. But the point isn't why they're doing it. Paul is saying, you know what? They're doing it. He's saying they're doing it. And he's going to make that point strongly, and you'll see in the beginning of the next verse. And Paul starts uh, verse 18 with this rhetorical question. Well, what is the result? He says, only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is being proclaimed. And he said, and this I rejoice. Why? Because for Paul, the net result of everything is that the gospel is being advanced. All things beyond that are secondary. The gospel is being advanced. This was his whole reason for coming to Rome. Paul sees this as the primary reason for his own existence. And the gospel's going forward. Now, he's not out of touch with reality. You've heard that you know, some people are so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. Well, that's not Paul. He's fully in touch with reality. He just has this set of priorities that the gospel is being proclaimed. That's the reality of his situation. Now, you can make a really interesting comparison here because he doesn't always talk this way. Um, think about what you just heard and compare it to what he says to the Galatian church in verses 7 through 9 of chapter 1. He says, not that there really is, speaking to these Galatians, not that there really is another gospel, but there are some who are disturbing you and wanting, you, and wanting to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be condemned to hell. As we have said before, and now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, let him be condemned to hell. Whoa! This is not what he's saying to this church in Philippi. This is not what he's saying to those people that are preaching the gospel from selfish ambition. Um, because for even for Paul... What is more important than motive is getting the message right. So that's number four. Get the gospel right. You know what? I don't always know what motivates me. 
But I do believe I know what I'm supposed to do. I pray by the grace of God I'm doing it with right motives. But what's important to Paul is that these people are getting the gospel right. Now, fortunately, you know what? The gospel is a very simple message. As a matter of fact, you can sum it up pretty easy. It starts out, we're all sinners. Romans 3.23. We've all sinned. We all fall short of God's glory. What's the result? Sin is death. Romans 6.23. And this death goes beyond a physical death. It actually speaks to an eternal separation from God. So, none of us could save each other. So God had to come and do the work himself. Romans 5.8. Christ, the Son of God, paid the penalty for our sins. While we were still sinners... Christ died for us. He did the work for us that we could never have done for ourselves. And then finally, we receive salvation by faith. Simple. That is the gospel message. Jesus doing for us what we could never have done for ourselves. By the way, that website that I gave you also goes into great detail on the content of the gospel. It's about communicating sin. It's about communicating the result of sin, what Jesus did for us, and then how we receive that gift of salvation. So it's a really straightforward, simple message. But we we need to get it right. Again, for Paul, it was more important than motive was getting the message right. It's a clear, simple message. So bringing all these things together... We make Christ known, one, by looking for gospel-sharing opportunities. Two, knowing how to share the gospel. That was a prerequisite for this church in Philippi. Three, finding courage from others. We've got such incredible examples. As a matter of fact, you can go to Hebrews chapter 11 and read that hall of fame of faith of what some people went through for the sake of the gospel. And then lastly, we just simply need to get the gospel right. Before we share it with somebody, we need to know what it is we're saying. I want to close... um, with, with this, this story of what happened some years ago in Europe, there was a huge financial crisis, and nobody really knew what was going to happen. And the very survival of the structure of the euro currency was at stake. And all eyes were on one man. It was the head of the European Central Bank. How was he going to respond to this? What was he going to do? What will he say? The financial markets were plunging. The currencies were plunging. And his words would either cause an implosion or a reversal of the volatility. So on the morning of July 26, 2012, when asked what he would do to protect the euro, he answered in three simple words. Whatever it is takes. The market started going up. Things became more volatile, rather less volatile. As soon as he spoke those words, the, the, the markets rallied. The immediate crisis, the immediate crisis at least, was over. And the structure of currency at the time was secured. Because there's a challenge here for us. When we're confronted with a world that is hurting, a world that is in pain, a world that is completely lost, and somebody asks us, what are we going to do about it? Our hope, our answer is, we're going to do whatever it takes. 
We're going to do whatever it takes to go into all the world and preach the Gospels. To see our friends, our colleagues, our neighbors come to realize that they too are loved and called by our Heavenly Father. Please pray with me. Lord, give us courage. Lord, help us to see the shackles that we put on ourselves. Help us, God, to be a church who, like Paul, sees the net result of our lives as the advancement of the gospel. Lord, I pray that we would glorify you in all that we do. Give us strength for today and courage for the week. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thank you all so much for being here today. You're dismissed. Thank you.